Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra and pay our respects to elders, past, present and future. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Ewing Trust Fitzroy Walking Tours podcast series. Fitzroy, Melbourne's first suburb, is full of stories, both old and new. The Fitzroy Walking Tours podcast series makes Fitzroy history easily accessible to the public. Each podcast features local experts talking about a particular topic. Simply download the podcast, go to a starting point, and start your walk around the streets of Fitzroy. Visit places of interest on your journey, taking things at your own pace. Or listen at any time, anywhere. Joining us on today's podcast will be three members of the Fitzroy Historical Society. Simon Armstrong, Jennifer McKegney and Peter Woods. The theme of today's Fitzroy Walking Tour podcast is A Walk Around Fitzroy Town Hall. This podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. The Ewing Trust is a fund that allows special and unique programming at Fitzroy Library and promotes libraries, literature and a lifelong love of learning in Fitzroy. Be sure to join us for future episodes in the Fitzroy Walking Tours series. Now please start this podcast at today's starting point, outside Fitzroy Town Hall on the corner of Napier Street and Condale Streets in Fitzroy. Enjoy! This is a first in a series of podcasts about the Fitzroy area and will largely circumnavigate the Town Hall and return to the place where we're standing. As we stand before the architecture of this magnificent town hall, it might be useful to set the scene for what this area was like when the town hall first was constructed. Fitzroy was Melbourne's first suburb. Its original name was Newtown. The Fitzroy name came from Sir Charles Fitzroy, who was governor of New South Wales. Fitzroy became a municipality in 1858 served the function of supplying labour and accommodation to the quickly growing Melbourne. Fitzroy was densely populated. It was a mix of both feast and famine after the gold rush of the 1850s. Melbourne was one of the wealthiest cities in the world at that time, and Fitzroy was well-placed to supply labour and services to the growing city. The first council meeting for Fitzroy occurred in 1858. Appropriately, it was in a pub. The Royal Exchange Hotel was the pub and that was in Gertrude Street, south of where we're standing now. The Royal Exchange Hotel currently still stands, but it's been modified and now it's a bar stroke cafe. The town hall itself was built in three stages over a 16 year period. Construction commenced in 1873. The location of this site was hotly debated. Many councillors wanted the town hall in Brunswick Street, but the council owned land on the current site, and so in the end this site prevailed as it was the most cost-effective place to locate the town hall. The location was argued over for several years, petitions were raised, as well as a ballot of the ratepayers. 
Finally, financial considerations won the day as the council didn't have to acquire any new lands to build this site on Napier Street. It's unusual for town halls to be located on a suburban street. This one on suburban street is one of a few in Victoria. The first architect in the design and building of the town hall was William Ellis who designed a number of other buildings in Melbourne, most notably the post office in Collingwood, the CUB Brewery Bluestone Building in Collingwood, and the terrace houses in Spring Street. In fact, if you turn left from where you're currently standing and look at the low-rise houses in Condell Street, numbers 32 to 44 were designed by William Ellis also. The Town Hall uh, building was commenced in 1873. The first part of the Town Hall was the building that you now see before you on the right-hand side on the corner of Napier and Moore Street. Foundation stone was laid by the then Mayor Elwood Delbridge. He had the stoneworks which were across from the current town hall on the south side of the street in Condell Street. We'll get to them later on in the podcast. The suggestion is that he and the architect William Ellis knew each other and Ellis was appointed without tender. So even in those days, the connections were rife and uh, business was won on friendship and knowing people, perhaps rather than who might have been the best for the project. Construction of the first phase took a little over a year to complete. Uh, it was celebrated with a ball on the 30th of June in 1874. The library, which is further down Moore Street, was probably part of the construction in that early phase, but it didn't open until 1877. The town hall was extended and substantially remodelled in 1887, the architect for this second stage was George Raymond Johnson. The cost was substantial, £43,000, which was an enormous amount of money in those days. The cost was able to be reached or funded through the help of Victorian government, who included a courthouse and police station at that time. The police station is still here on the site. George Johnson was well known for his work on town halls in other parts of Victoria and he also designed the town halls of Albury, Dalesford, Collingwood, Northcote and Kilmore. Second phase of the building took place between 1887 and 1889. That phase included the addition of a central wing and a remodelling of the clock tower, which is, is a famous part of the building that you see before you now. The library wing and the courthouse on the south side were also added at that stage. In this era, the town hall was the centre for all local civic life. There were mayoral balls, social and ceremonial occasions held at the town hall. Before we leave this first position, it's worth looking up at the top of the building, at the apex of the pediment, you'll see a coat of arms. There are in fact two coat of arms on the pediment of the building. 
The smaller one is the coat of arms of Victoria. The second larger one is the coat of arms of Fitzroy, which is based on the coat of arms of the Fitzroy family. The first head of the family was Charles Fitzroy, who was the illegitimate son of King Charles II. You will notice on that coat of arms, there's a bar across the middle of it. This signifies that the family can never ascend the throne due to the illegitimacy. The origin of the Fitzroy name is very interesting. Roy means king, Fitz is illegitimate, so Fitzroy is the illegitimate son of the king. Now, walk about 20 metres north along Napier Street until you are in front of the main entrance of Fitzroy Town Hall. Town halls were impressive monuments to fierce local pride. This was true of town halls in England, and the tradition was transmitted enthusiastically to Australia. This couldn't be more evident than in the case of Fitzroy. The grand structure, with its imposing Corinthian columns, was a seat of administration for an area of only about two square miles, or five square kilometres. William J. Ellis, the architect of the town hall, adopted a neoclassical Roman revival architectural style for the town hall. This was in vogue in England until just after the middle of the 19th century. Now, several factors contributed to the popularity of this style. The first, and perhaps the most significant, is that Roman revival buildings echoed the authority and the dignity of imperial Rome. This was especially important in a new colony like Victoria, where community identities were still being forged. On a practical level too, Roman revival architecture offered more scope to accommodate town hall functions than Greek revival, which had been popular in England in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Unlike Greek revival buildings, which, like Greek temples, sat flat in the landscape, Roman revival buildings, like Roman temples, were elevated and therefore provided additional capacity to utilise the basement below the Grand Hall for administrative purposes. A third factor that probably contributed to the popularity of this type of style uh, was the wealth generated by gold here in Melbourne after the middle of the 19th century. This meant that communities were better able to afford elaborate and consequently expensive decorative elements uh, that are a feature of Roman Revival architecture. Um, so in a way, it was like Fitzroy was showing off a little bit with its grand building. Let's talk a little bit about the features of the town hall that are consistent with Roman temple design. There are probably four key elements of temple design that are reflected here in the town hall. And in summary, they're the steps, the front of the town hall, the portico of giant columns that support the pediment, the Corinthian order as distinct from the Corinthian columns themselves, and the pediment. We're standing before the monumental flight of steps. Now, uh, in a town hall, you didn't necessarily need a huge flight of steps 
that extends across the front of the whole building. And remember that uh, this northern wing on the corner of Napier and Moore Street uh, was the original town hall. So the monumental flight of steps are flanked by projecting walls and they give emphasis to the frontality of the building. This was a very Roman thing. Unlike Greek temples where the back of the building was very much like the front, the Roman temple gave great emphasis to frontality and that is true here at Fitzroy Town Hall. Secondly, a columned portico dominates the facade. Now, as you'll note, there are six columns in the portico. This is referred to as hexastyle, and uh, Roman temples could have six columns. They could have anything from four to ten or more columns across their facade. The use of a gigantic order, and that is one that extends up several stories, reinforces the significance of the building and is not a common feature of town halls in Melbourne. There are only a few examples of where this is used. Another one, much later than Fitzroy Town Hall, was South Melbourne Town Hall. To the Romans, the Corinthian columns were Greek, but not too Greek, as they weren't associated with any Greek divinities in the way that Doric and Ionic columns were. So they were right to put their own imprint on them. Rather than a peristyle or columns that extend around the building, as is the case in most Roman temples, on the side walls of Fitzroy Town Hall, there are 11 rectangular pilasters. Now, each of those pilasters has a Corinthian capital. These are decorative, obviously, rather than load-bearing. They provide some continuity with the capitals across the front. Ellis has used an additional decorative feature, and that is swags or garlands that, that occur between each of the pilasters and are between the columns on the front of the building. We don't know where Ellis drew his inspiration for the decorative elements of the Fitzroy Town Hall, but he would have had access at minimum to the works on classical architecture that were held in the public library, which is now the State Library. He probably also had an opportunity to see town halls that had been constructed in England. It's possible that Ellis may also have had an opportunity to visit temples in Italy and France and other locations further afield as part of a grand tour. One very general source of inspiration for Fitzroy Town Hall may well have been the Augustan Temple Maison Carré in Nîmes in the south of France. This was built in about 19 uh, years before the Common Era. This little temple was hexastyle. That is, it had six columns across the front and 11 columns down the side. Eight of these were engaged in the wall, so embedded into the, the wall of the temple. And it has some visual parallels with the pilasters along the Moore Street side of the building. This temple was detailed in Antonio Palladio's Four Books of Architecture, which was in the possession of the library. The swag decoration that we see on the town hall has reference points in buildings such as the Pantheon in Rome, perhaps the, perhaps the greatest intact temple in Rome. This was also described in Palladio's book. A third element 
of temple architecture that we see here at Fitzroy is the use of an architecturally correct or orthodox Corinthian order. While Corinthian columns were a Greek creation, the Corinthian order itself wasn't fully realised until Augustan times in the first century. Augustus undertook a massive building program in Rome and increased the use of marble throughout the empire. The Corinthian order comprises not just the columns and their bases, it also incorporates a very specific set of mouldings that above the columns and below the triangular pediment at the top of the building. So this is referred to as the entablature. And the entablature has three components. So if we look up immediately on top of the columns, you'll see a band that's divided into three steps. This is a three-stepped architrave. That's the first component of the Orthodox Corinthian entablature. Now, this version here at Fitzroy doesn't have elaborate moulding between each of the steps, uh, as was the case in uh, classical temples, but it still has its three steps, so it's architecturally correct. Immediately above the architrave is what's called the frieze. The next band is called the frieze. And you'll notice that this does have some decoration. So uh, there are wreaths, as you'll see, that align with each of the columns. Conversely, in the Orthodox Corinthian order, friezes were usually left plain. But Ellis has decided perhaps that he'd get more bang for his buck by putting some decoration on the frieze that was much more visible than perhaps on other parts of the entablature. There are lots of examples in Rome of temples that incorporated decoration into their frieze. And Maison Carré is one such example. I've mentioned this building before. Uh, its frieze was decorated with acanthus leaf scrolling, uh, which is a very significant part of Roman decoration. Um, and we'll come back to that. Now, another potential source of inspiration for the use of wreaths is something that's a little bit more recent, and that is the St George's Hall in Liverpool that was built between 1841 and 1854, so it's conceivable that Ellis may well have, have known about it. This uses wreaths just like the town hall does in its attic frieze. The third component of the entablature is the cornice. Now, if you look above the frieze, you'll see that there are a row of blocks that extend across the section. This is called a dental course. It's very significant in uh, the Corinthian order. Uh, above the dental course, supporting a corona that projects out a little bit, are brackets or medallions. Now, this is very much uh, a Roman feature. And in the case of Fitzroy, as in most temples, these brackets uh, are scrolled acanthus leaves. Between the brackets on a Roman temple, you would normally have rosettes set in coffers. Now, there are none of those here at Fitzroy, but that might just be because 
Ellis decided that he would save some money uh, on this decorative element because it's small and quite high up. It may not be as visible as perhaps the wreaths that we've talked about earlier. If you want an example of the use of rosettes in uh, a Melbourne building, uh, the State Library provides a very good example. Now, the final component that I'd like to draw your attention to is the pediment. Um, very prominent, uh, and in Roman temples, it was usually filled with sculpture. Uh, you've heard earlier about the coats of arms of Fitzroy. Note also that the, the pediment is filled with very beautiful acanthus scrolling. From Roman times, architects borrowed elements from a range of examples to create their own unique decorative schemes within the confines of the Corinthian order. This ensured that the form remained dynamic. The practice became a tradition in itself and was transmitted through Rome to the Renaissance and to neoclassical movements of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. Fitzroy Town Hall is not a copy of any one temple, but borrows, and this is part of its beauty, borrows from a range of classical and neoclassical sources. And in this regard, it is unique and continues the tradition that was established in Rome. While we are standing near the front of the town hall, can I draw your attention to the special lights placed across the frontage? There are two types, those on the red painted bases mounted on the walls alongside the steps and the two taller posts painted grey. The lights on the red posts were erected at the time of the extension to the town hall and were powered by electricity. The grey painted lights are modern versions of those that were located at the corners of every street in Fitzroy and indeed Melbourne in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The lights were gas-powered and each was lit each evening by a lamp lighter operating from a ladder and extinguished by 11 o'clock. One lamp lighter complained that by the time he had finished lighting the lamps, it was necessary for him to start at the beginning of the round and put them out. The glass surround to the light source, either four or six-sided, required cleaning prior to lighting as a layer of soot formed on the glass, reducing the effectiveness of the light, which was not great at the best of times. Lamplighters occasionally fell from ladders while cleaning the glass. If we consider this form of lighting of our streets was crude, Melbourne's earliest lighting was provided only by innkeepers, who were required by law to have an oil-fired lamp burning outside their premises from sunset to sunrise. One can imagine how unsafe it must have been with long gaps between these lamps where potholes, drainage channels and generally uneven street surfaces posed dangers, let alone what one may have stepped on. From time to time the lamplighters throughout Melbourne demanded higher wages and as early as 1872 formed an association for their mutual benefit and protection. They once went on strike and you can imagine all streets without any lighting. When we are finished, you may like to look at the base of one of the grey lights, where you will see the name Phillips, McWalter and Chambers. This company supplied the lamp pillars for the Great Exhibition in 1880 at the Exhibition Building in Carlton. 
The other major supplier of gas lamp pillars was Anderson and Ritchie, founded in 1905, and their foundry was located in Rose Street, Fitzroy. Their name was cast into each standard, along with Edwards Lighting Engineers Ballarat Victoria, who are still in operation in Ballarat today. Gas lighting in Fitzroy's streets was gradually replaced by electric lights, but the gas lights remained until at least 1911, as budget items in Fitzroy Council documents show that in that year Council approved payments to both Electric Supply Company and Metropolitan Gas Company for the coming year. If you keep your eyes open, you will see several of these original gas lamp standards remaining in their original locations in Fitzroy today, bases only, as none of the lamp heads remain. Modern electric powered lights mounted on replica gas light standards, such as we see here at the Town Hall, were installed in several locations within Fitzroy in about 1990, with an electric light source and mounted in a glass lamp head. The light output, even with electricity, is nowhere near as effective as the modern overhead street lights. Keep walking up Napier Street to the corner of Napier and Moore Streets. Before we move on to our third point, it's worth looking at the small park on our right. It's named Whitlam Place. Of course, the name uh, comes from Gough Whitlam, who was Prime Minister from 1972 to 75. He addressed a town hall meeting in this town hall the day before he was dismissed on the 11th of November 1975. The other interesting piece in this park is there's a recent statue that was erected in 2014. It's titled Courage. This statue that you can see in the park on our right is a tribute to the LGBTI community and it's dedicated to Ralph McLean who was the first openly gay elected official in the municipality. Walk to the corner of Moore Street and Young Street. If we walk down West and Moore Street, a small grassed area lies just beyond the Town Hall. All the land on which the Town Hall sits was originally known as the Market Place, and a market was held here from 1869 until about 1900. The spare land remaining following the building of the town hall was then occupied by a fire station. The new Fitzroy Volunteer Fire Brigade was formed in 1880, replacing a paid brigade where, according to council records, some members had grown to be very old men in the service. The inauguration of the new Volunteer Brigade was cause for celebration including the breaking of a bottle of champagne over the brigade's hose reel, which they had named the Firefly. If it were the year 1890, you would see the brick fire station in the location of, and much the same size, as the two-storey building in front of you. It had accommodation for a single, horse-drawn fire engine, the Firefly, on the ground floor, 
and a drill hall and a meeting room located on the upper floor. The most visual object in the area, however, was a wooden lattice tower built in 1885 and located where you see three flagpoles today. It was as high as the town hall and was fitted with a bell at the top. Upon the ringing of the bell, the volunteer firemen knew that a fire had broken out somewhere in Fitzroy and they were required for action. Money for the building of the tower was raised by the volunteers who put on demonstrations for Fitzroy people so they could see how the volunteers fought a fire. The brigade was not operational for long, however, as in May 1891, only two years after the building was completed, the duties of all Melbourne fire brigades was taken over by the new Metropolitan Fire Brigade. The nearest station then, and still is, the iconic red brick building at Eastern Hill. The Fitzroy Fire Station building, however, remained for some years thereafter. However, we do not know who occupied it. Another council facility was located in this area between 1869 and 1905, where a small off-street car park is now, a way bridge once provided a service in weighing commercial carts and wagons so that charges could be made to those whose goods were being transported. It was installed by the market committee, which managed all the land in this area, and was leased to a private operator who paid the market committee for its use. Other land uses on the remains of the town hall block were a miniature rifle range from 1907 until 1918 and the Fitzroy School of Arts. This may have been located in the basement of the town hall where the lending library is now located. Many fire stations were privately run or part of insurance companies. The first known fire brigade in Melbourne was the Volunteer Melbourne Fire Prevention Society, established in 1845. Over a period of the 1850s to the 1890s, a number of volunteer brigades were formed bearing the names of insurance companies and municipalities. Other institutions as well, such as the Carlton Brewery or the Fitzroy Temperance Fire Society. There was intense rivalry between these brigades. Buildings had a wooden or metal plaque in the form of an insurance brigade's coat of arms or fire mark that was affixed to the exterior, denoting which insurance company had the building under its care. When the fire alarm was given, many companies would rush to the scene, the mark would be inspected, and only the brigade that owned the mark would fight the fire, while the other companies would do their best to hinder the operation. By 1890, there were 56 such volunteer brigades in Melbourne. After several serious fires in the 1890s, with the loss of life of six firefighters in addition to the loss of property, the Fire Brigades Act of 1890 was passed with the aim of uniting these rival fire brigades. On the 1st of May 1891, the Melbourne Fire Brigade became the main fire brigade in Melbourne. Walk along Young Street until you get to Condell Street. Turn left at Condell Street 
and walk 20 metres to the steps of the Town Hall on Condell Street. Walk up those steps. At the top of the steps in front of the old courthouse, you'll see a plaque commissioned by Alfred Deacon. Alfred Deacon, born in 1857 and died in 1919, was an Australian politician who served as the second Prime Minister of Australia. He was in office on three separate terms from 1903 to 1904, from 1905 to 1908 and from 1909 to 1910. Alfred Deakin was born in Fitzroy in a residence not far from here at 90 George Street. The residence doesn't exist anymore, but he lived there for the early years of his life. Looking out from this vantage point south across what is now the children's play area, the site is today very different from how it was in the 1850s to 1900s. This site was the site for Delbridge's stoneworks. You may recall from the earlier part of the podcast, Delbridge was the first mayor during the construction of this town hall. The site of the stoneworks was also a site for Stone's timber yard, and in 1912 it was famous for a fire which almost spread to the town hall. The prisoners which were held in the police station had to be removed during that fire due to the intense heat and the town hall was threatened by that fire uh, and was burnt at the time. Of course, the area we're looking at now is very different today. Back in the day, it was densely populated area with many narrow streets and simple dwellings. It was regarded as a slum it was controversially knocked down in the 1950s and 1960s and replaced by the high-rise towers you can see in the distance. That was the first episode of the Ewing Trust Fitzroy Walking Tours podcast series. Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust would like to thank the three members of the Fitzroy Historical Society that shared their knowledge with us. Simon Armstrong, Jennifer McKigney, and Peter Woods. Please like, share, and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast. We will have new episodes of the Ewing Trust Fitzroy Walking Tours podcast available throughout 2021, as well as our range of author interviews, book clubs, and special events. Thank you again to the Ewing Trust for making this podcast possible.